Welcome to Arbor Bridge Church's weekly podcast with your teacher, Daryl Canty. Arbor Bridge Church exists to bridge the gospel and our community by connecting people to Jesus and each other. Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. Um, so, in the not too distant future, um, a day is coming when you are going to be tested. Um, you're going to face a test, and it comes your way. It's going to reveal the kind of person that you actually are. Uh, and certainly, this has happened in your life before. Maybe you've had an idea in your mind about who you are, and a test or something comes into your life that reveals maybe you're not the person you thought you were. God wants you to be ready to be persons of of love and truth when those tests come. So in order for that to happen, you have to do more than just show up here on Sunday. Um, And and I'm grateful that we get to be together. I'm super glad to be here with you. Um, But clearly what we do here um, is, is a part of what needs to be done to get us ready for the tests that are coming our way. So in this series, um, I've been calling the tests that we face in our lives graduation days. Um, It's a time in our life where we're going to face a test to see if we're ready to graduate to the next level or our next steps with Christ, um, what he wants us to do next. Um, And God wants you prepared for those moments. Uh, He wants you to be wise enough to know what to do, and he wants you to be strong enough to be able to do it. Now, those two things together are super important. He wants you wise enough to know what to do, and he wants you strong enough to be able to do it. And sometimes, I, you know, if you're like me, I know what I need to do. I know what I need to change. I know in my mind, oh, this is what I should be doing, but I'm often not strong enough to execute it. I, I fall back into habit. Or God wants us to be strong enough to know what to do. I mean, strong, uh, wise enough to know what to do and strong enough to be able to do it. So I was talking, I was talking with, um, I'll share with some of you guys, I was talking with uh, a friend of mine named Elton recently. Um, and in, in the conversation, I was complaining um, and ranting about another person um, that I was angry at, <clears throat> not my wife. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, And he just sat there listening to me after I wore myself out, uh, telling the story of why I was so mad at this person and and talking about how wrong they were and how awful they were and how they hurt me. Um, He steps in and gently says, you need to talk to him. Tell him how you feel. Graduation day. It's a graduation day. I I should have saw it coming, right? (laughs) I should have saw it coming. Um, and I told him, I can't do that, right? I can't do that. I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't even know how to start a conversation like that. And he, and Elton says this, he says, why don't you say this, say this. I'm really struggling with some feelings going on, on in me. Um, would you help me process what happened between us? Okay, that sounds dumb, right? I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm just going to handle it on my own. I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not, no. In my life, in my life, when I fail, when I fail graduations, it's often because I underestimate the power of sin. I underestimate my anger. I underestimate the consequences of letting it stay. Um, I I convince myself it's not a big deal um, and that I can handle it on my own. And I assume that I'm a good guy and I'm capable of handling sin. Um, 
I underestimate the consequences of ignoring get rid of anger, the, the commands to get, I underestimate the consequences of ignoring the command to do everything without arguing or complaining. We talked last week about how God wants us to convince us of our hopelessness. Um, sin wants to convince me that I'm wiser than I am, that I'm stronger than I am, that I under, that my, my understanding of sin goes something like this. Um, yeah, I make mistakes, but I'm a pretty good guy. And that's a gross understatement. Um, clearly, anybody, if, if you know anything about sin, you know that's a gross understatement of what happens in me because of sin. Listen to this quote. Listen to this quote. It says, sin does not leave us merely guilty. It renders us unable. It robs us of the ability to live in a way that pleases God. Sin kidnaps our desires and distorts our thoughts. It controls our tongues and rules our behavior. It saps our resolve and weakens our knees. It leaves us lame, weak, and unable. We, we, we don't just need forgiveness and ultimate deliverance. ultimate deliverance. We also desperately need present help. Help so that we will have the will to desire and the power to do what is good in the sight of God. We like to, we like to assume that we're strong enough to be good on our own. Um, we assume that, our, you know, if you're like me, we assume our, our, our thoughts and our intuitions are right. We assume that our hearts can be trusted. But sin renders us unable. Like, you can't trust your heart. You can't, you, your intuitions, you can't trust. They're right sometimes, but they're... We don't realize it, right? We don't just need forgiveness, but we need ultimate deliverance. But we don't, you know, we don't believe that. Uh, we don't realize it. We don't remember it. If you do believe it. So to, to convince us of our sin, God allows things into our lives to illustrate our hopelessness. That's fun. So when I find myself with a, with a health concern that I know I can't fix, um, it, it's a parable. It's a story. It's a story of of. The desperation that I, so yeah, I'm, I'm desperate for help because of my, my health condition. That's, that's, that, that's there, but I'm also desperate for God's help because of sin. And last week we, we talked about how the Israelites were led um, by God into the desert and eventually they run out of food and water. Was that by accident? Did God say, oops, I forgot, I forgot to pack enough food for you guys. Or did he plan to use that situation to show them how hopeless, how hopeless they were to depend on themselves? Not just for food, but for everything. Or to be the kind of people that they want to be. He, he set them up. He set them up. And, and here's, the, here's the hard part for me to remember or to embrace or to be good with. It is God's grace when he allows me to face tests like that. When he allows me to face them and be in those situations. When he allows me to fail them so that I can be slapped out of my blindness to my sin and awaken to the hopeless state that I'm in. It's his grace. It doesn't feel like grace when it's happening. 
but it is his grace. I need to be awakened to the, to the hopeless state I'm in because of my sin. But our, our message isn't we are hopeless. Jesus followers, our message isn't we're hopeless. What an awful message. Our message is that we are full of hope because of Christ. That is our message. That is our message. Our message is that we're full of hope because of Christ. Now, those of you guys who know, who are students of the Bible, you know, the Bible often holds these two opposing ideas together. And in order for us to experience the fullness of Christ, we have to hold this tension between two opposing ideas. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. What? Hold that intention. The Bible teaches that I am hopeless. While at the same time, the Bible teaches that I am full of hope because of Christ. That is the gospel. And and I, I, I have to give up hope in myself if I ever want to have the best hope the real hope, the true hope, the, the, the hope that sets us free. Last week, we focused on the first part of the paradox, mostly. The, the, you're hopeless in sin. You don't have a chance. You can't fix yourself. You're not going to make this right. We focused mostly on that. And this week, I want to focus on the good news. I, I want us to spend time on why we are so full of hope. And no matter what situation you're in, if God is allowing something into your life to illustrate your hopelessness right now, I'm so, so sorry. And today is a really good day for you to lean into the fullness of hope in Christ. And that's going to be hard for you to believe. It's going to be hard for you to believe. So imagine, um, imagine you're in financial trouble. Imagine you're in financial trouble and you come to my office and we talk for an hour about your mounting debt, um, the bills that are coming, um, and you're afraid, you're afraid they're going to repossess your car, uh, and you need, you need like $100,000 in like the next, next couple weeks in order to fix what you're going through. And, uh, and again, we're just talking because clearly I'm not, I, I can't help you. I can't help you. I'm not sure what to do, but, um, but you know, we can pray and I can walk with you through it. I can walk with you through it. So let's, let's, let's say that, that we have that meeting and I sit there and I listen to you for an hour and we cry together and I pray together. And we, and so after, after we get done doing all that, we walk out of my office and we're walking up here to the, to the front of the church building. And as we get there, a really nice car pulls up to pick you up. And I'm like, whose car is this? You say, um, oh yeah, it belongs to Beyonce. She's my wife. You're married to Beyonce. And you're wondering how you're going to take care of $100,000 in debt. It's estimated that Beyonce makes like $3 million a month. So in one day, in one day, she makes $100,000. Our 
circumstances is because of, of our sin are far more hopeless than needing $100,000. Far more hopeless. But our wealth because of Christ is far better than anything you can imagine on this planet. Far better than anything you can imagine and anything you can have. And as silly and as ridiculous as it would be to handle your own financial problems when you're, when you're married, to, married to Beyonce, it is more foolish to put our hope in ourselves in this life when we have the glorious hope of Christ sitting right next to us. We are in serious trouble because of sin. And that's an understatement. That's an understatement. But Jesus is this, this invincible, lion-hearted, fierce friend, brilliant, self-sacrificing, magnetic, loving, pure-hearted, blameless, faultless, best person you've ever, ever met. And he is for you. He is for you. He is on your side. We can face anything and everything full of hope because of Christ. We can face anything holding that paradox of our terrible sinfulness and our incredible hope in Christ. The Bible teaches that we're the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We are connected that closely to him. With his help and following his lead, there is no graduation we cannot face. There's nothing, nothing. When we, listen, listen to this quote. When we invite God into our test and dwell and dwell in an, an abiding relationship with Jesus, our operating system shifts. And instead of fear being the motivator of our lives, we start with love. The hard thing, obviously, for us is to abide in that. We, we, you know, when we keep our minds on the hopelessness of our situation, we'll live in fear. When we keep our minds on the hopelessness of what we have to face, we'll fail our graduations. If we keep our mind on how ready you think you are or how much, how much you don't need anybody else, you're going to be in trouble. But when we stare at Christ, when we take time to think about how powerful he is. When, when we spend time considering how much he loves us and how, how well he does it, when we consider how wise he is and remember how much he is on our side, if we spend our time thinking about the, the kinds of things that our hope should rest on, we will naturally, naturally move from hope in ourselves to hope in him. And there will not be a graduation that we can't face. I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about the greatness of Christ together um, he is the greatest good. I was with a friend the other day and I said that out loud and she wasn't ready for those words. She's like, how can, how can he be the greatest good? Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you don't know him. I've shared this, this, this with you guys before. Um, so let me, let me just say this again. If you and I go out to lunch together after this, we go over to whatever, Olive Garden, and we're sitting there talking together. And one of my friends from college walks in that I haven't seen in like 10 years. When they walk in, I'm going to be excited to see them. 
So let's say that happens, that we're having lunch together, me and you are having lunch together, you're sitting there, and I'm sitting there, they walk in, and I'm excited to see them, I stand up and I hug them, and we're just, we're sitting there, we're just, you, while you're sitting there, we're talking together, we're, we're, we're reminiscing, we do that for like 10 minutes, you're trying to be patient, but you're like, come on, you're not, you're not excited to see them, Why? My college friend is here. They're super amazing person. I, I love. You're not excited to see them though. Why? You don't know them. You don't know them. So when I say something like Christ is the greatest good, believe me when I say this. If that doesn't resonate with you or if you're like, oh, I don't know. It's because you don't know him yet. Because the more you know him, the closer you come to him, the more you're going to be like, oh, you have understated it, Daryl. You haven't even said it good enough. I want to spend our time sharing with you some of the greatness of Christ. Uh, and, and, and again, we do this all the time with things that we love. We'll stand together and I'll tell you about Star Wars movies and we'll talk back or we'll talk about your favorite book all day long or whatever you like. We'll gush about it together. Permit me. Permit me to do some gushing about the greatness of Christ. Maybe um, I've been inviting our church to do uh, Sabbath together on Sundays um, and some of it's for resting, but maybe, maybe, maybe it would be just a great to just take some time to write down, to, to read about, to think about the greatness of Christ. What makes Christ so great? When you do that, when you do that, naturally your hope will move from yourself over to him. First, consider his power. Listen to this verse. Consider his power. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is First John, I mean, uh, John 1, John chapter 1. Later on in John chapter one, we're told, and the word was made flesh, the only son of the father, Jesus Christ. So the word is Jesus Christ. When we face graduations, when we face our tests, this, this person written about here is, is the person who is with you, close, closer than a brother. When you were, it's, like, it's like when you were 10 years old and you were in your fifth grade math class taking a test, it would be like having a, somebody who has a doctorate in math sitting there next to you at your side ready to help you with your tests. That, many of our tests can be interpreted as darkness, difficulty. If you're going through a test right now, you would say, yes, darkness, difficulty. This says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. The world is filled with darkness, but the one who made the world out of nothing, he is the light and he is on your side. John 12 says this, he says, when you have the light, while you have the light, believe in the light and you will become sons of light, sons and daughters of light. He's saying, while you have the light, 
believe in the light, set your mind on the light, meditate on the light. And when you do that, you become sons and daughters of light. I think that what it's saying is when we meditate on Christ in the darkness of our test and the things that you're facing, we will become light in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. That is power. That is power. It is is powerful like when I walk to my house at night sometimes, there are parts of my house, parts parts of my house that are super dark. But when the light comes, cuts through the darkness, power. That's power that you can't buy. When we put our minds on him, the light will triumph. That means Jesus will triumph and all of us who believe in him, the children of light will triumph also. That's hard to believe sometimes when you're in your graduation tests. But that's the power that we have because of him. If you dwell on that idea, if you think about idea and what, what it really means, it will be natural for you to move your hope from yourself. The person who made the world out of every, nothing is the light. Move your hope from yourself to him. Second, um, when, considering, when considering if you should put your hope in him, consider his courage. Consider his courage. We love courage. It comes naturally to us. We're drawn to it. Jesus says and does things that end up getting him killed. Didn't he know? Didn't he know? He's, didn't he know if he said these things that, that this would happen? Of course, right? Of course he knew it. He knows if I open this can of worms, if I go down this path, they're going to kill me for it. And he does it anyway. He does it anyway because he always does what he must do. And he always does what is right no matter what the cost is. So once Jesus was in a temple on a Sabbath day, um, Jews had strict rules about what could be done on a Sabbath day. Um, No work. And they considered healing people on the Sabbath work. When Jesus enters a temple, there's a man with a withered hand. And that's a really big deal in that culture because in that culture, almost every job is physical labor. So if you've got a withered hand... It puts, you at a, it puts you at a disadvantage. The religious leaders see Jesus enter and they see this guy with a withered hand and they know. They know what he's thinking and he know that. And so they want to test him. They want to test him. And they say, they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, in front of everybody, Jesus, is it lawful to heal people on the Sabbath? And they want to trap him. They want to test him. They think this is Jesus' graduation day. We're going to get Jesus this time. And instead of answering their question, Jesus asked them a question. So they ask him, hey, um, Jesus, is it lawful to heal anybody on the Sabbath day? And Jesus asked them a question. He said, hey, check it out. <clears throat> if one of your farm animals falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, what are you going to do? Silence. Silence. Maybe they didn't hear me. If one of your farm animals falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, what are you going to do? Nothing. How much more value does this person have with a withered hand than the farm animals that you have that you know you would save on the Sabbath day? How much more value does this man have? And then Jesus heals him in front of everybody. In front of everybody. 
after he does that, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Jesus knew what would happen. Imagine that moment. Imagine that moment when he walks into the room, he knows what he's going to do, and he knows that if I do this, they're going to go and make plans to kill me. He walks in and does it anyway. He walks in and does it anyway. And if we were there, we might say, yo, Jesus, you know, maybe can we heal him after the worship service? Why don't you catch up with him on the way home and pull him aside and heal him, not in front of these guys. And Jesus says, nah. When he heals him in front of everybody, he's saying, this man is important. He, actually, he's so important that I'm willing to give my life so that he can be healed. I, and he doesn't back down, even though he knows what it's going to cost. I want you to think about this. This has happened to us before, all of us before. When someone is courageous on your behalf, you can't help but put hope in them. When someone is courageous on your behalf, when you see them risking things for you on your behalf, then your hope shifts to them without you even trying. I want you, I want you, I mean, to meditate on, think about, read about, remind ourselves how Christ is courageous for us. Because he is. He is. He is. When we do that, our hope will naturally shift from us to him. You won't even have to try. Last one for today. Last one for today. Consider his integrity. Consider his integrity. Here's what I mean by that. He is what he says he is. He is who he says he is. There is no space, there is no space at all between what he says and what he does. And again, in normal, everyday life, we love people like this. We love it. When people are what they say they are, there's no pretending, there's no, this is what I want you to do, but I'm going to do this. Jesus, he says what he means. And he is who he says he is. Uh, I, I've shared this with you, some of you guys before. Um, in the world, some of the, one of the most respected people in the world was, was Mother Teresa. Once Mother Teresa was in the States and she had a chance to speak to politicians in Washington um, from both camps about uh, abortion. She talked about abortion. And she talked about how wrong she thought it was. At the end of her speech, everyone stands up and applauds. Everyone, people who disagree with her. Here's why. There is no space between what she was saying and who she She spent her whole life taking care of hundreds and hundreds of orphans. There is no space between what she said and who she was. And everybody said, woo. Yes. Jesus Christ is like that times a million. Times a million. 
Jesus' message is, he would say some radical things. Listen to this. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Further on, same chapter. You've heard it said, you've heard that this was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Aren't, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. If you're a Jesus follower for more than 15 minutes, you've heard heard these words, you've read these words before, but if you you read them, there are hard words. When Jesus was on earth, many historians think that this this little part of what Jesus said was a part of his go-to message. Um, What I mean by that is Jesus... This still happens today. When a pastor or a preacher is like a, a, a speaker and they tr- get to travel all over, they have a go-to message. They have a message that they repeat over and over and over again that they figure out, this is, this is what I want to say or this is what my message is. They do it over and over again because it's different people. Historians think this was a part of Jesus' go-to message. So he would go from town to town saying these kinds of things over and over and over again. So his disciples who would travel with him, they'd hear this thing over and over and over again. And they would be thinking, those are, I mean, you know, when we, like we do. This is what, those, are, those, those are good ideas. I want people, I want you to do that. That, this will be good for, good for the world. And then they saw it, right? And then they saw it. They saw him doing it. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. When Jesus is arrested, he's brought before a high priest. And at that time, high priests are there. You're, you're supposed to honor them and you, you treat them. I mean, if you, any, the only thing close in our, in our lives would be like the Pope, maybe. Something, I mean, you, you're on your best behavior. The, the high priest, is, they're questioning Jesus. And Jesus responds in a way that people don't like to this, this high priest question. So when Jesus responded that way, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? And Jesus' response was this. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, then why did you strike me? So when Jesus preaches in a sermon, he doesn't really mean, maybe you've never thought of this before, he doesn't really mean to turn the other cheek. What, he really, what he's saying is, don't, don't look to retaliate. What he's saying is, don't look to even the score. He says, when people do this to you, don't look to, to get revenge. And he says it in a, in, a, in a super extreme way so that you get how far he wants you to go in doing it. And when he's preaching this, when he's saying this, his disciples and everyone's listening, they're like, oh yeah, that I guess I can see how that would be good. But seeing him do it is different than listening to him say it. 
he does it. And that, that is why he's so, so, so powerful. You and I worship a God who says, this is what I want you to do. Let me show you what it looks like. That is powerful. That is powerful. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. This is, this is super counterintuitive for me. Um, I'd rather complain about my enemies rather than pray for them. When people, with people lying about him and the crowd calling for his crucifixion and soldiers spitting on him and mocking him and beating him and the Jewish leaders arranging his murder, with all that happening, Jesus says this. He says, Father, forgive them for they, know, they do not know what they are doing. So imagine all that stuff has just happened in that day that Jesus is being crucified and you're one of his disciples standing around and Jesus says this. That sermon that you've heard over and over and over again, everywhere you went, like, oh, he's doing it. He's doing the thing that that he said. He said, pray for you. He's doing it. Right now, in the most ridiculous, incredibly terrible situation, he is doing it. That makes all the... If Jesus got into this situation and couldn't pray for his enemies, couldn't love them like he... It undermines everything. But to see him live it out. Jesus is talking to his father about sinners. If you're a parent, you know, nothing, nothing in the world will discredit you more than to have you come to a place like this and say, oh yeah, pray for your enemies. That's what you should do. And then go home and act like a jerk. Your kids will see and know, especially your teenagers. They got that, that bull crap meter where they're like, Mm-mm, I'm not about that. I'm not about that. But when they see you say this, have there no space between what you are doing, it is so powerful. That is Jesus Christ. There is no space between what he says and what he does. And here's the thing. I'm not asking you to do what he does yet. Don't do what he does. I'm just asking for you to believe in him. I'm just asking you for, I'm just asking you to put your hope in him. Put your hope in him. Instead of dwelling on the hopelessness of whatever you're facing, I want you, I'm asking you to set your mind, not on the things that are happening on earth, but set your mind on what he is, who he is. As we read on him and as we think of him, each week when we take communion together, um, we, make, we make space to think about the incredible greatness of Jesus. I want you to think for a second about whatever you gush about. Whatever you gush about, whatever you love, whatever you like, whatever, no one has to ask you to brag about or talk about. Think about that for a second.
what I want you to do during these next few moments when we take communion together, even if it's not, even if it's going to be clunky, even if you don't know what to do, I want, I want you to try to gush about Christ that way. Call on everything you know about Christ and think about what makes him so great. And just you, you to yourself gush about what makes him so great. And here's the thing. When we do that enough, when we do that enough, our hope without us even trying will move from ourselves to him. Move to our, from ourselves to him. Let's do that during our communion today. Think about the greatness of Christ and let your hopes and your dreams slide over from you to him today. Let's pray together. Dear Father, uh, to say you are good is an insult. To say you are great is not enough. To say that you are the most wonderful being in the universe doesn't cover it. Help us in these moments that we're, having, we're, we're, we're spending time specifically taking communion together. Help us in these moments bring to our mind the things of your greatness. Maybe, maybe, maybe just reveal to us things that we couldn't know on our own. Let us dwell on those things and help us, help us by doing that, be able to move our hope from ourselves over to you. It would seem like it would be natural. It would seem like it would be easy. The difference between us and you is so great, but we still struggle. We still we just need you. Help us during this time of communion Bring to our minds your greatness. Show us your glory. And shift our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on our church, visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. 